The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who set us the solitary in families, we commend to thy continual care the homes in which thy people dwell. Put far from them, we beseech thee every root of bitterness, the desire of vainglory, and the pride of life. Fill them with faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness. Knit together in constant affection those who in holy wedlock have been made one flesh. Turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers. And so enkindle fervent charity among us all, that we be ever more kindly affectioned with brotherly love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome, and thank you for being here this morning as we talk about uh, the beautiful harmony that is Christian marriage and Christian family and parish life and how these three things are connected, uh, both in terms of their existence, but also in terms of the way that they interact with one another in the formation of individual Christians. So we will spend our first session discussing the topic of Christian marriage, um, and I think it's helpful to remember that when we talk about marriage, we're not just talking about an arbitrary set of policies or, um, or certain cultural customs, though those are certainly parts of what we talk about when we talk about marriage, but we're talking about a sacrament. We're talking about a sacrament. And there are, of course, seven sacraments in the church. There's baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, reconciliation or confession, matrimony, ordination, and unction, or the prayers for the sick. Sacraments are all outward signs of inward grace. The sacrament is an assurance that the Holy Ghost is doing what he promises. So there doesn't, there doesn't need to be any hand-wringing, am I really a Christian or not? No, you've been baptized, right? Um, you don't need to wring your hands wondering, well, did we really receive Jesus uh, in the communion on Sunday or not? No, you don't need to wring your hands because the Holy Ghost is faithful to do what he says he'll do. Some sacraments should be received by all people. Baptism is certainly something that we believe everyone should receive. Eucharist is something for all baptized Christians. Confirmation is, is, is a good thing. It's maybe not required to be a Christian, but it's a good thing, and we, we recommend that happen for all people who come into the Anglican or the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox churches from outside. Uh, we believe that confession, while again not mandatory, is a good thing that should be practiced. Uh, I always say, because you know the, the, the classic Anglican, I call it Anglican fudge, the classic Anglican fudge on this is, you know, some, uh, all can, some should, none have to when it comes to confession. Um, but I always say, well, ask me if you think I, that you should, because <laughs> my answer will be yes. Um, so so, uh, so we, we think that everyone should do reconciliation, should make their confession. And we also think that, you know, anytime that someone is sick, that unction is an appropriate uh, thing for them to receive. And anybody can receive those sacraments, right? I mean, if you're baptized, I mean, if you're a person, you can be baptized. Uh, if you're a baptized person, you can receive the Eucharist. If you're a baptized person, you can receive confirmation and, and reconciliation and all those things. Other sacraments, namely ordination and matrimony, are given only to those who are called to the particular vocations that they, uh, that they create. Not everyone is called to be a priest. Indeed, not everyone can be a priest. And similarly, not everyone is called to be married. In fact, it's even a higher calling to pursue a life of celibacy. And, and we see that in the scriptures quite clearly. Matthew nineteen twelve, Jesus says there are some eunuchs which were so from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, 
and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul goes on a tangent about the nature of marriage. There was some uh, interesting situations going on in the church in Corinth. You know, we often think, oh, well, uh, you know, biblical Christianity, they had it so right, and it's all been downhill from there. But in Corinth, Paul is writing to address a man or to address the church's handling of a situation where a man was uh, having a relationship with his mother-in-law, um, which is not something that I've ever had to pastorally deal with. So I am quite thankful for that. Um, but in, in chapter 7, he goes on about the nature of marriage. And his recommendation, the, the Apostle Paul's recommendation, is that it should be avoided if possible. In verses 1 through 2, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So in other words, uh, it's, if, you can, if you can last without getting married, do that. And, but if you really have to, then you can get married, and that's okay. Now, this is not uh, because sex is icky or because marriage is gross. Uh, in fact, those who are celibate are still called to live lives of fruitfulness. It might look differently than the couple who has biological children or something like that, but still, because that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 35 of that chapter, the purpose of the celibacy is that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. I can understand, I don't agree with it, but I can understand why the Roman Catholic Church actually requires priests to be celibate. I think it gets them in some hot water, and I think forcing it as a requirement is not a great thing. But having a family and being a priest, I can understand. I mean, sometimes you have to make choices, you know. I can't do that. I can't go to that thing because I've got to be home with my wife and children, and our ministry starts at home. And that's a beautiful thing and a good thing. But you can understand that sometimes you feel like you're on two different trains going two different directions um, with that. Just because celibacy is, is, to Paul, the higher calling does not mean that marriage should be demeaned because marriage is a natural state. I mean, it's right in the scriptures from the very beginning. Um, in fact, it's the only sacrament instituted before the fall. Adam and Eve were married prior to the fall. All the other sacraments we have uh, are to help us uh, attend to the wounds of the fall, and marriage does do that. But in God's initial plan, there was a purpose for marriage beyond merely fixing what was wrong. So 1 Corinthians 7, 7, um, God, Paul does say, I would, I would that all men were even as I myself. That is, we seem to think he was at this point in his life celibate. Whether he had been married before is kind of an open question. But every man hath his proper gift of God, Paul says, one after this manner and another after that. In other, in other words, there are people who are called to lives of celibacy, and they should be free to do that. And there are people who are called to marriage, and they should be free to do that. And one is not necessarily greater than the other. Right? The whole point of 1 Corinthians is you can't pit these gifts over these gifts. Just because you speak in tongues and you prophesy doesn't mean you're better than them or vice versa. Genesis 2.24 tells us, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And this, of course, points us forward to the end of the scriptures. So marriage opens the scriptures in Genesis 2, but Revelation 19, John sees this vision. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him honor, 
for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. So every human marriage, every marriage here on earth that happens in the church is this icon. It's a window into this marriage at the end of all things. And similarly, this is why uh, what goes on during Holy Communion is a kind of nuptial feast, right? Because, because we're getting a window into that heavenly worship uh, at, the, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is also, by the way, as an aside and not the, our main point, but this is why uh, in the Anglican province of America, we don't believe that women should be priests. Not because there's a deficiency in their ability. You know, if being a pastor is giving talks like this, uh, counseling people, doing administrative work, uh, visiting the sick, anybody can do those things. Uh, but rather, there's a wedding that happens every Sunday. And so it's no accident that in the 70s, the Episcopal Church started um, started ordaining women. And then, you know, 30 years later, they start performing homosexual weddings because they see one every Sunday. Anyways, like I said, that's a side point. But in other words, the, the point is not that certain kinds of people are inferior and therefore can't be priests. That's clericalism. The point is there's a wedding happening. Even though not everyone is called to marriage, it's important that we understand why marriage matters. Um, because the church is the body of Christ, and we're only healthy when the whole body is healthy. So in other words, even those who are called to celibacy have an investment in seeing Christian marriage as a successful institution. Um, I'll tell you this story. Um, I go to confession at a Roman Catholic church, and so my confessor is celibate and never been married as far as I'm aware. Uh, and uh, I confessed one time something about, you know, I, I think I had been a little snippy at home, you know, with Caroline or something. And this, pri- this priest, you know, they give you some advice sometimes, and, some- and sometimes you wish they wouldn't give you the advice that they do. But uh, he, said, uh, he said, well, you know, I have a friend who's married, and he said, you know, when him and his wife fight, they just get naked. And I was like, you obviously have never been married. <laughs> Because you would know not to give that advice <laughs> if you were married. <laughs> so anyway, so it, it helps to know, I mean, even for someone who's celibate, to know why Christian marriage exists, what it looks like, and what its purpose is. So when we say that marriage is a sacrament, it, it, this helps us a little bit uh, approach the question of, of what should a marriage look like. Is How does it begin, or what do we mean when we say it's a sacrament? Every sacrament has four integral parts to to it. There's a form, there's matter, there's intent, and there's the minister. The form is that which is said. It's the liturgy itself. So the form of baptism is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's it. Somebody does that and pours water on the person, they're baptized. The, um, The form of matrimony is the I do. It's the consent between the couple, the I take you to be my wife or to be my husband. So that's the form. The matter is that which has to be present for the sacrament to be confected. So the matter of baptism is water. The matter of the Eucharist is bread and wine. The matter of matrimony is the consent of the couple. So they have to fully consent, which is why we do something called annulments, which is that in some cases, the one or both of the couple 
may not fully be consenting to the marriage. And sometimes they don't even know they're not fully consenting to the marriage, so it requires a little bit of investigation. But that consent is really key. So there's form and matter, and then there's intent. Intent is what the church intends to do in the sacrament. It is not the intention of the individual minister necessarily who administers the sacrament. You could have an atheistic priest stand up and say communion, and it still would be communion whether he intends it to be or not, because the intention is set not by his own private thoughts, but by the liturgy of the church. The form sets the intention. The sacrament of baptism, for example, has the intention of creating a Christian. This intention of matrimony is to cut a covenant between the couple that involves mutual fidelity, companionship, and the creation of a Christian home and family. Now, the very interesting thing about matrimony is is the question of minister. Who does the wedding? Who does the marriage? Right, the minister of baptism is typically a priest, though it can be a deacon or it can even be a layperson. It can actually even be a non-Christian, technically, in an emergency situation. Not recommended, but possible. The minister of communion must be a priest or a bishop. But the minister of matrimony is actually not the priest. It's the couple. The couple confects the sacrament as long as they are uh, in an acceptable state. So in other words, that they're not already married or something like that. So, it's, so the, 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 the priest stands there as a witness, as, as he speaks for God. You know, um, There's that beautiful moment, if you've ever seen an Anglican wedding, where the priest wraps their hands in his stole, puts his hand on top and says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder, which is really beautiful. But that's, that's not him causing the marriage to exist. The marriage exists because the couple has said the I do's to each other, and the priest is ratifying that by putting his hand on them. And, and he's, he's, he's making this very solemn pronouncement about what's going on there. Now, I think it helps to go back to Genesis for a moment. Um, You have this wonderful, uh, beautiful story. God creates everything. Um, You know, he fills the the sea and the sky with birds and fish. He fills the land uh, with animals. And then on on that last day of creation... He, he molds Adam into, in the dust and he breathes into him. And then he gives Adam the really important job of naming all the animals. And so the animals are paraded in front of him. And um, the, the joke I always tell is, you know, the, the one animal goes by, Adam says, that's a kangaroo. And God says, excellent job, Adam. And the next animal comes by and he goes, and that's a, that's a hippopotamus. And God says, oh, I knew I picked the right guy. And then, uh, and, then, and then another animal walks by and Adam says, and that's a cat. And God says, I did not make that. <laughs> But at the end of this procession of the animals, Adam has no one like him. All the animals are paired off, but Adam has nothing. And so there's a kind of loneliness there. He wasn't created to be alone, but he is alone. And so God puts him in his sleep and he takes the rib out of Adam and he forms and shapes Eve. And then when Adam wakes up, God presents Eve to him. And what does Adam say? Anybody remember? What are Adam's words? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. So there's this beautiful imagery going on there, right? She comes from Adam, not the way that most people typically are born. Um, in fact, actually, uh, St. Anselm uses this as a, as, a, as a way of thinking about the virgin birth of Christ, that you know, at the beginning, a woman was created from a single man. Most of us are created from the union of man and woman. 
But no one before Jesus was created just from a woman. So it's the one, it's the last frontier. (laughs) And Jesus is created that way. Very interesting. Well, his human nature is created that way, I should say. Um, but anyway, so, so yeah, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. There is, there is a recognition from the get-go of equality, right? We are of the same stuff. But also there is this beautiful picture of difference. I mean, there's kind of the obvious difference, you know, of, of sexual difference, biological difference. There's also much more in, under the surface there. I mean, we know scientifically there's neurobiological differences between men and women, right? And we also know there are social differences between men and women, which are all, both good. Hugh of St. Victor, we talked about this the other night at our, at our summer study. Hugh of St. Victor, who's one of my favorite uh, medieval theologians, has this beautiful line when he's talking about creation where he says, Woman was made from man himself. Since if she had been made from another source, surely the beginning of all men would not have been one. So that idea of unity. Now she was made from the side of man that it might be shown that she was created for association and love. Lest perhaps if she had been made from the head, she would seem to be preferred to man unto damnation or if from the feet to be subject unto slavery. Since therefore she was furnished to man neither as a mistress nor a handmaid, but as a companion, she had to be produced neither from the head nor the feet, but from the side in order that he might realize that she was to be placed beside him, whom he, had, whom he learned had been taken from his very side. Which I think is just such a beautiful picture. She's not above him. She's not below him. She is equal to him. So there's this kind of interchange between equality and difference that exists between man and woman in the garden there. Our differences are in kinds but not in equality. Our differences can be the occasion for conflict when that, equ- that equality is not fully appreciated or when those differences are not fully appreciated. You know, misogyny, for example, is not a good thing. Um, but that's not God's ideal for human flourishing when we, when we pit those things against each other, when we look to suppress the difference. The ideal is that we recognize and celebrate the difference between men and women and also see those differences as instructive. John Chrysostom points out that the whole reason that Eve is created out of Adam's side and then subsequently uh, human generation takes two is that, is that it teaches us that none of us are, are self-sufficient. We're dependent on others. And this is, why, this is why sexual difference is key to a marriage too, right? That, that, that there is a kind of difference. Um, it's not looking in a mirror and seeing yourself. It's looking in the mirror at seeing someone different and knowing those differences. And those differences temper us, usually, hopefully, for the better. And so when that celebration between, between the, of the differences is done well, when men and women can be who God created them to be, there's a kind of beautiful harmony that exists in the marriage. Sirach 25.1 says, My soul takes pleasure in three things, and they are beautiful in the sight of the Lord and men. Agreement between brothers, friendship between neighbors, and a wife and a husband who live in harmony. John Chrysostom, he has this wonderful, it's a very short little book of, I think it's four or five sermons called On Marriage and Family Life. And of course, Chrysostom lived in the 600s, uh, or maybe a little earlier. David, is that right? 500s, 600s, John Chrysostom? 400s? 400s. He thinks? Okay, 400s. Fifth century. He says, when husband and wife are at odds with one another, 
their household is in no better shape than a storm-tossed ship in which the captain and pilot disagree. And so it's very, and we've all seen this, I'm sure, in different ways. Um, With the rise of divorce rates and everything, you know, you certainly see this, but though it's always existed, you know, I mean, even, even without, even barring divorce, there's still situations in which husband and wife can be odd, at odds with one another, and the household is just chaotic because of that. So what is the thing that this points us to? This beautiful picture of man, woman coming together, becoming one flesh, um, bone of my bones, you know, that equality and difference, uh, interplaying with each other. Well, uh, the New Testament tells us that uh, that marriage is really an exercise in Christology. It tells us about our Lord and Savior. Um, in fact, we, we say this at the, in the, at the beginning of the, mar- of the matrimonial service in the prayer book, that, that this marriage is a serious deal because it is depicting the mystical union betwixt Christ and his church. So Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 is where we go scripturally for this. Paul quotes Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, sacramentum in Latin, is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. It refers to Christ and his church. How? How does it show us the relationship between Christ and his church? Well, we might first think about the idea of or really at the heart of it, marriage is a form of self-donation to the other. Marriage is about giving. It's about sacrificing for the other. And this happens in many ways. I mean, it can happen in small things. Where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, I want to go here. Okay, we'll go where you want to go. Um, But it can happen in big ways too. You know, I have to take this job because I want to provide for my family or I want to, I won't take this job because I don't want to upend my family and move them somewhere where they're not going to feel at home and it won't be good for them. So there is a kind of, there is a kind of sacrifice that's wrapped up in this. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 3, uh, Paul, it makes the point about uh, sacrifice in terms of the conjugal relationship between man and woman. Um, So in verse 3 of chapter 7, um, he reminds of both spouses that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another except perhaps by agreement for a season that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. So in other words, uh, when you enter into this covenant with the other person, there is a kind of that that idea of becoming the one flesh means that you are uh, willing to submit to the other person. Um, And that goes both ways. It's important to remember because sometimes, you know, you find different parts of uh, especially American Christianity where one of those is emphasized over the others, right? The husband's right is emphasized over the wife's right. But there, Paul is very clear that both uh, spouses have that that right. So in the conjugal relationship, there's this kind of of sacrifice or self-giving for the other. Um, sacrifice makes it sound like you don't get anything out of return, but there is a, it is a, it is a mutual self-giving. It, the body becomes a, a means w- by which you give and receive uh, love. But there's also Paul's larger argument about, um, about 
how the home should be structured. And we'll talk more about uh, Christian family in the next session. But um, in terms of the relationship between husband and wife, Ephesians 5, 21 through 24 says, be subject one to another out of reverence for Christ, speaking to both spouses, be subject to one another. And then he specifically details what that looks like for wives and husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. And then he speaks to the husbands, verses 25 to 28. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So again, that idea of sort of mutual submission, of, of a willingness to serve, of giving to the other person. Um, obviously, uh, that, those passages can be abused and misread. I, we went to a wedding once, um, one of Caroline's relatives, and... Uh, they became, the, the side of the family was sort of nominally Catholic, and this particular family member became evangelical when she was younger. So it was an evangelical wedding, kind of reformed church, and uh, I have never heard the word submit more times in an hour than when I was sitting in this wedding listening to this guy preach the sermon on what was going on. And you need to make sure you submit to your husband and submit, submit, submit all the whole time. And it's funny because I could see it. We were sitting kind of in the back and I could see all the women on, in Caroline's family all sort of perk up. And <laughs> it was very interesting. Um, so that can be an emphasis. And, and, and certainly, you know, I mean, Paul does say it. And so we have to work out, well, what exactly does that mean and what does that look like? But uh, it's important. I think what we need to, to harp on now is the mutuality of the, of the thing. Right, so there. Yes, there is this these verses about the about wives submitting to your husband, but there's also these verses about husbands loving your wives so much that you're willing to sacrifice and give for her. So there's really not much room to. I mean, you you you. Some people might cut out verses 21 and 24 and paste those somewhere. You know, hey, make sure you obey. But the the retort should always be to point to verses 25 to 28. Well, look what the high calling it is for husbands. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies? That requires a lot of sacrifice. One of the implications of of the differences. So there's this idea of harmony. And there's this idea of of unity and difference. And we know that it it points us to a deeper mystery. That deeper mystery of Christ and the church and the relationship that, that exists there the body of Christ, right? I mean, that's exactly the imagery, right? We're one body. Our head is Christ. We're the body. But what all of this points us to is the idea of fruitfulness, of fruitfulness. So uh, this this is the Genesis thing, right? I mean, all the animals are in pairs. The implication being they're going to multiply. And when Adam is sitting there by himself, there is no means for multiplication. But then the woman comes. And God tells them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Working and tending, multiplication. And so, so, when, so part of the, the telos of Christian marriage is this idea of multiplication. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. Um, but the idea of reproduction. 
And that highlights very much what we're called to do as the church, not just to have a nice little country club where people like us can come and we can, you know, have like lots of nice social gatherings. Not that there's anything wrong with social gatherings and and those do have a really important function in the life of a church. But the idea is that we should always be multiplying and we'll talk about different ways in which we do that. It's not purely adding numbers to the church, though that is part of it. Um, it I think it's also a, a kind of growing in our faith. But, but anyway, so that idea of multiplication is going to be deeply embedded in what, what it is that we talk about in our next session. So the, the telos of marriage is to point to this mystical unity. And out of that mystical unity springs new life. What a beautiful gift. What a miracle it is. And so, um, so the marriage between Christ and his church, just like our, our human marriages, should always be reproducing, replicating. And so when we understand that, when we understand kind of the differences that exist in the marriage, I, I mean, it's beautiful. I, if I married myself, God forbid, uh, or someone like me, I, we would never, ever do anything fun. If Caroline married someone like herself, Nothing would ever get done. And sometimes, you know, as the more type A doer, that annoys me. And I'm sure, in fact, I know that sometimes my type A getting things done can annoy her. But that beautiful difference of coming together creates a kind of harmony where, yes, we get things done in our house, but also we take time, hopefully, and we enjoy things. You know, we play games, we sit around and don't do much, you know, and that's okay. It's good, right? So that difference between us is actually really important. Yes, it can cause some friction sometimes, but it's a good thing. Um, Chrysostom in one of his sermons talks about that verse where it says, husbands love your wife as you love your body. And he says, you all know your bodies are not perfect. Your bodies have flaws. And so if you can love your own body, even though it's flawed, you can love your spouse, even if even if she is flawed. Um, and of course, those, those differences aren't even necessarily flaws, but you know, we, can, we can understand what he's trying to get at there. So the idea here is that, that in the marriage, we're given a context in which we can flourish by interacting with someone else who's different than us. And we'll talk about what that flourishing looks like in our next session. Let's take a couple minute break here, maybe get some more donuts because we don't want the donuts to go bad. We do that. Are there any questions? Sorry, I meant to ask. Are there any questions, comments, concerns, complaints? I wanted to, uh, you mentioned sacrifice on the part of the husband. And I just couldn't help but think, you know, that um, sitting here listening, I, I think that the act of sacrifice on the husband's part is an act of submission also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so the husband is submitting. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as I recall, um, all. So yes. Like right. That's great. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the idea there of, of the, uh, if a husband is sacrificing, there is a, a kind of submission going on. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, when, when, you know, when I was in college, I was on the debate team and it was awesome. I loved it. Uh, and part of being on the debate team was that we traveled almost every weekend. I mean, we were home maybe 
maybe one weekend a month we were at school, and then the rest we were traveling for tournaments. So it's constantly on the go. And when I was looking at doing seminary and and grad school and all that, um, I was offered a position as a graduate assistant for the debate team. Now, Caroline and I got married after my after two years of me being an undergrad. I only I did three years of undergrad, but the third year we were married and I I worked. So when I was going to grad, and the, the benefit of of being a graduate assistant was I would have gotten free school. And so I really wanted to take the job because I love debate. I had traveled some the year that I was um, that I was not on the team and married. I had traveled with them some and done some judging and stuff like that and coaching. And so it would, be, it would have been something that I would have really enjoyed. But Caroline did not love the idea of me having to be gone basically three weekends a month during the school year. And at first, that made me a little sort of, ah, but I want to do it. You know, this would be a good opportunity. I'd get free school. And then, you know, God actually opened some other doors. Uh, I was able to basically get the same job as a graduate assistant working in the School of Divinity for a professor there. And so I was able to say, no, no thank you to the graduate assistant position. Um, I still got to travel with the team and coach and judge when I wanted to, which was, I, you know, she was okay with me maybe doing it once a month or something like that, but, um, but I wasn't gone as much, right? So there was a sense in which that was a sacrifice um, because I was giving her what she wanted slash needed, um, and, and recognize that as more important than me being able to put debate graduate assistant on my CV and resume and all that, you know. And of course, looking back, I'm incredibly glad I didn't take that job, right? But, uh, and I think it would have been really hard had I done that. Um, so anyway, so that would be one example. I mean, it's a small example, but yes, she expressed a need, desire, and so I said, okay, sounds good. Let's do that. Um, I didn't say it quite as nice as that. It took me, I, it took, I was a little, it, it took a little more kicking and screaming, but I did eventually come to that conclusion. <laughs> David? Yeah, well, I was early in your, uh, when you mentioned Paul's talk about marriage, I was reminded of an author that I discovered seven or eight years ago, uh, Sarah Rudin. Mm. who is a Greek, a scholar of Greek. Yes, she's translated some works, I believe. Uh, yeah. uh, she was teaching Greek as an ancient language at Harvard for four or five years. And real, she's Quaker, by the way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so has very little theological input to the New Testament. Right which makes her very valuable. Uh, But she noticed that there was no interaction between the Department of Theology and the Department of Ancient Languages. And one of her books about Paul, she has a number of books, including a a new translation Mm -hmm. of the New Testament. But she makes the point that the culture in Greece that Paul was referring to is profoundly different from ours. Yes. And that it has evolved, especially after the third century, Mm -hmm. as Christianity and German culture and any number of things have 
infiltrated the European culture. And yet, and this may not be Rudin, this may just be me, what Paul is saying continues to be useful. Mm -hmm. But the notion of going back to first century Christianity isn't the same. Sure. Because we simply cannot, we are, regardless of the amount of study that we do, incompetent to understand first century mm -hmm. Israeli or Greek culture that all of these documents were speaking to, and yet they continue to speak to us as culture changes. The psalm that we were reading this morning speaks very directly yep. to today, yes. moment in time, and it's remarkable. What an amazing coincidence. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, it's important. Uh, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, we often act as though the scriptures fell from the sky. Uh, and there is a sense in which I do believe that scriptures ever, ever ancient, ever new, you know, the Holy Spirit's always speaking through the scriptures to us, the reader. But at the same time, it helps to know. So, for example, uh, we were just talking about this on Tuesday night. Uh, or Thursday night at the at the summer study that you know how did the how did the ancient Greeks view women for example well if you look at um, if you look at if you look at Timaeus by Plato which is one of his dialogues women are created a as an afterthought and b they're defective men he says that they're cowardly men became women and then the gods implanted a desire to basically for the, um, men to view them as sort of incubators for seed. Right, So it's a very demeaning view of women, which is why in the Greek mind, there was a lot of privileging of male-male relationships over male-female relationships. There was a huge uh, – anyways, that's a whole other topic. But there Christianity – oh, go ahead. There was a Greek who, who was changed into a woman mm -hmm. for two years as punishment and – when he returned to his masculine state, he was asked which state enjoys sex more. And he let slip that women enjoys, according to them, <laughs> 10 times more. So there was a certain degree of fear. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, fear is wrapped up. Yes, absolutely. And then I think, you know, so, so the scriptures are very different because you have this uh, creation is good, the human person is good, sexual difference is good, um, the two become and, and become one flesh. It's not women aren't superfluous uh, extras, you know, who are just there for reproductive purposes, but rather that difference is intentional. Um, and so it's really beautiful. Now we get passages in the New Testament that can be kind of hard. Like, so for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, well, I don't, I don't allow women to speak in church. Now, that's a very interesting verse because elsewhere he does seem to indicate that women were speaking in church. Like when he says when men and women prophesy, which involves speaking, um, during church. Uh, you know, so he's obviously, he's okay. But I think what, what, what was happening for a lot of the, you know, and again, it helps to know some of the cultural background here is that uh, women were not usually educated. And they inhabited a very oral culture. I mean, even today, you go to Israel, they talk. 
a lot. You know, it's how they process things. And so if you have a church, I mean, imagine if, if when you came to church every morning, the men sat on this pew and the women all sat on this pew, which is what they were doing in the early church. And I'm preaching a sermon and, you know, some woman who's never been, who can't read, who doesn't know what I'm talking about. You know, let's say I make a reference to, to Macbeth or something and, you know, in the sermon and she yells from this pew to that pew to her husband. Hey, what is, what is he talking about? What is Macbeth? I mean, obviously that's disruptive, right? It seems like that's the kind of thing that was going on in the church in Corinth that causes Paul to say, don't let women speak during church. Just let their husband teach them at home. That's what he says because they may not. I mean, and again, that's not because of a deficiency in nature. That's just because they haven't been given the educational opportunities. Right. So anyway, so that's a, that's another example of, you know, we read that and, and, you know, there are people who want to recover the first century view and say, well, women shouldn't ever speak in church. Uh, well, let's think about why Paul was saying that and, and all that. And of course, these are all reconstructions and sometimes reconstructions do mirror the person who's doing the reconstructing. But um, anyways, we, we do need to be careful with those passages and, and understand what's going on. But I do think it's, it's helpful to emphasize that the Christian perspective on sexual difference is revolutionary. At least in its time, it was revolutionary. Now we take it for granted, but it was, it was a real rupture from the way that the pagans viewed, viewed it. Yeah. Okay. For example, when he speaks of, of marriage in order to avoid fornication, mm. we we think of living in a relationship without benefit of marriage. Mm-hmm. He's thinking of the absolutely accepted and common everyday uh, experience of of having an experience with a prostitute right. of either sex, uh, often. Horribly abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, the idea of your body as a temple mm-hmm. is that that verse comes out when he's speaking of don't join yourself to a prostitute because your body is a temple, because once you do that, you're defiling. And yeah, you're right. It's perfectly acceptable in the culture to do that, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's and I mean, you can draw all sorts of parallels to today. I mean, you know. Look at the rates of pornography use, for example, right? I mean, it's certainly, for many people, completely acceptable. And it's so weird that you would, you know. But again, I think that idea is still there. Your body is a temple. There's this idea of um, keeping yourself pure that is really important. Um, and so anyway, so yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Okay, very good. Well, let's, um, let's take a break, and we'll come back maybe in about five minutes or so and uh, continue on.